Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Tabi Solohoko and Tami Kluza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN expert to probe human rights abuses in Central African Republic and Syria, Syria peace talks set to get underway in Switzerland. In economics, South African Chamber of Mines seeks interdicts against AMCU strike and in sports news, Ghana and Libya qualify for Chan quarterfinals. But first up, the news with Tabiso Lehoko. Thanks, Lulu. Syrian peace talks will begin in Switzerland today with officials expressing little hope of a major breakthrough beyond the defeat of bringing President Bashar al-Assad's regime and the opposition uh, to the same table. International diplomats and Syria's warring sides arrived for the crucial peace conference yesterday after months of wrangling that has threatened to derail the talks up until last minute. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov landed for the talks set to begin in the town of Monroe and Lake Geneva. Delegations from Syrian opposition and the Damascus regime also made it to Monroe after the Syrian government plane was blocked for several hours from leaving Athens airport. The United Nations Human Rights Council has adopted a resolution to appoint an independent expert to investigate the human rights situation in the Central African Republic. The council in Geneva announced Mary Teresa Keita Bukom from Côte d'Ivoire to serve as independent expert on the country. This follows an opinion by a senior UN official of the real risk of genocide in the country. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The resolution was adopted without a vote and following a special session on the situation in the strife-riven country. Ambassador Minelek Alemu Getahub is Ethiopia's permanent representative to the UN in Geneva, speaking on behalf of the Africa Group. The draft resolution before the Human Rights Council condemns all forms of violations of human rights in international humanitarian law by all parties to the conflict and demands an immediate halt of these heinous acts. Muslim Brotherhood members in Egypt meet only after sunset and are wary of everyone, including family members, as part of tactics to outwit informants. Three years after Egypt's revolt, which toppled President Hosni Mubarak, their 85-year-old movement is now designated and designed a terrorist organization by the country's military-installed authorities. A Kenyan magistrate has visited Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall, the scene of last year's Al-Shabaab terrorist attack. Daniel Ochenja is hearing a case against the four Somalis facing charges related to the attack. David Keithy is a renowned Kenyan lawyer and expert on terrorism. We share a border with Somalia, and because we share a border with Somalia, the people on the other side of the country, that is Somalia, and the people of Kenya are the same. They share language, they share culture, religion, so they will live the same lifestyle. But then secondly is that uh, there's a lot of immigration of the Somalis themselves from Somalia to Kenya because of the political environment of the country, that is Kenya, because Somalia is still in turmoil by and large. 
A disarmament conference could be just what the United Nations Secretary-General has described as a driving force for building a safer world and a better future. Ban Ki-moon is in Geneva, where he has addressed the conference on disarmament, hosted by the International Forum, which looks at all multilateral arms control and disarmament issues, including preventing nuclear war. Negotiations on his program of work have been deadlocked for nearly two decades. Branded as abnormal and with politicians baying for blood, Uganda's gay community has been pushed to further underground in what medical and rights activists say it could be a setback for the fight against HIV and AIDS. Last week, Uganda's President Yuweru Museveni refused to approve a controversial bill that would have seen homosexuals jailed for life even after lawmakers removed an extremely controversial death penalty clause. Museveni's decision was greeted with measured relief among gays. Channel African News. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Tabiso. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.05 Central African time, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We welcome your feedback on Africa Rise and Shine. If you have any questions or comments about our show or just want to get in touch with us, please call us on plus two seven one two three nine five zero. You can also email us on info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782. Double three two five nine zero five. You can also get a hold of us on our Twitter handle at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In our top story, the United Nations Human Rights Council has adopted a resolution to appoint an independent expert to investigate the human rights situation in the Central African Republic. The Council in Geneva announced Marie-Theresa Keita Bakum from Côte d'Ivoire to serve as independent expert on the country. This follows an opinion by a senior UN official of the real risk of genocide in the country. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The resolution was adopted without a vote and following a special session on the situation in the strife-riven country. Ambassador Minelek Alemu Getahub is Ethiopia's permanent representative to the UN in Geneva, speaking on behalf of the Africa Group. The draft resolution before the Human Rights Council condemns all forms of violations of human rights in international humanitarian law by all parties to the conflict and demands an immediate halt of these heinous acts. The UN's top human rights official, Navi Pillay, pled for a stronger international effort to prevent the CAR slide into a wholesale sectarian conflict, putting Muslims and Christians against each other. Anti-Balaka mutilated Muslim women, men and children before and after they were killed, including upon the breasts of female victims and genitals of male victims. Bodies were found at the Ali Babola mosque with limbs cut off. A witness reported seeing ex-Seleka armed with machetes, chopping off the arms and slashing the neck of a young Christian on 9th December 2013. She called for the urgent restoration of state authority. I urge the international community to increase its support to the Central African Republic for prompt restoration of security and state authority throughout the country, the promotion of the rule of law and the realization of economic, social and cultural rights. A more robust 
response to the crisis is urgently needed in the Central African Republic to protect civilians, prevent further violence, end impunity and promote reconciliation. While over 6,000 AU MISCA troops supported by a French contingent have deployed to the country, the UN Security Council will consider a fully-fledged peacekeeping force next month after receiving recommendations from the Secretary-General, who has welcomed the election of Catherine Samba Panza as the new head of state of the transitional government in CAR. She replaces the CAR's first Muslim leader, Michel de Todia, who resigned earlier this month after failing to curb the violence in the country. Sherman Bricebees at the United Nations, New York. A plane loaded with life-saving supplies ranging from medicines to midwifery kits touched down in South Sudan's capital, Juba, yesterday. It's the first of two planes chartered by the UN General UN Children's Agency, UNICEF, that are bringing treatments for malaria, pneumonia and other illnesses for thousands of women and children across the country. More than half a million people in South Sudan have fled their homes over the past month following clashes between government forces and soldiers supporting the country's former vice president. Don Bob spoke to Demot Kati, UNICEF's deputy director of emergency operations in South Sudan, about the airlift. The plane that arrived was one of two special flights that have been organized by UNICEF. Each one of them is bringing in 35 tons of supplies. The first one arrived this morning, as you know, and the second one is due to arrive on Thursday morning. Now, we are bringing in treatment for malaria for children with dehydration caused by diarrhea and for children suffering from malnutrition. As well as this, we're also bringing in micronutrients, vitamins, antibiotics, painkillers, hence tarpaulins and blankets. There are also midwifery and obstetric surgery kits and also equipment to provide clean water and sanitation. There's been some problems there recently, the inter-ethnic fighting. How much of an impact has that had on your work in getting humanitarian supplies in? Well, at the moment, as you may be aware, access is difficult for security reasons. And we're trying to take this into account by adapting our program to allow us to be much more flexible and ready to jump through the windows of opportunity when they present themselves. So we are organizing, if you like, hit-and-run teams that can immediately go to the field once opportunity arises. Now, as you're aware, this would be completely dependent on the security situation, and indeed they can be hidden. Yesterday, for example, we had planned to go to Awiriel County, where there are some 70,000 internally displaced people. We were ready to go, and unfortunately, the security situation there changed, and we had to stand down. But we're still ready to go, and we will maintain this level of readiness for every opportunity that comes our way. Yesterday they said that you would read a statement at the airport when you got there. If you've got that statement, can you read it for us this morning? As you may know, the numbers of displaced people have been rapidly increasing and well over half a million people have been displaced. We are hearing tragic reports of children dying unnecessarily from malnutrition and preventable diseases such as measles. Of course, the supplies that we have brought in will help to address that. But in the meantime, with supplies that we already had on the ground, we're already providing water and sanitation in many places where we have had in and out access. And it's important to realize that when we say, you know, we have provided water and sanitation and hygiene services, this is not a hit and run. 
thing, providing water and sanitation services are 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we've been able to supply and provide this support for the last weeks where we have had access to the protection of civilian centres. That was Demut Karti, UNICEF's Deputy Director of Emergency Operations in South Sudan, talking to Don Bob. Africa, rise and shine. It's 12 minutes after 8 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Civil society organizations and conflict analysts say that the conflict in South Sudan may divide the countries of the Horn of Africa if it is not handled as soon as possible. Channel Africa's Koleta Wanjohi has more from Addis Ababa. Countries within the Horn of Africa include Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, Sudan and South Sudan. These countries each suffers from protracted political strife arising from local and national grievance, identity politics and regional interstate rivalries. For instance, while Somalia is still fighting for stability, Ethiopia and Eritrea still have an unsolved long-standing rivalry. On the other hand, Sudan still has its conflicts with the now-troubled South Sudan over oil resources. These countries cannot afford to get more complications. However, a forum of civil societies and conflict analysts meeting in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, say that the conflict in South Sudan may breed more division within the countries of the Horn of Africa. Here, Hamid El-Ghani Ali, who is a conflict analyst, explains further. We don't want to see the fight that has happened in the DRC between the African nations that they intervene, they are supporting one or another. Because South is very fragile and this could easily escalate to the ethnic warfare and where if it becomes an ethnic warfare, it's going to be quite difficult to be controlled. So it, has a, it could spill over to the neighboring countries. The refugees are likely to, they are stranded in the borders with Sudan now and they are likely to be also moving to Ethiopia, others are likely to be moving to Uganda, and this is also creating a humanitarian crisis. The ongoing conflict in South Sudan continues to escalate the number of refugees that are now seeking asylum in the neighboring countries. Conflict analysts say that the danger to the Horn of Africa is escalated by the fact that some countries like Uganda have intervened individually militarily, while others have showed desire to intervene too at individual level, and yet they have existing conflicts with other countries in the region. John Young, who is also a conflict analyst, explains what this could get the region into. Uh, there's been talk about the Sudanese getting involved, about them um, providing security in the oil fields. We're even hearing talk about Eritrea. Sometimes the reports are denied. It, it goes back and forth, but there's obviously a real danger of that. Uh, we're in Ethiopia here. We know the Ethiopians would not be very happy at all about any Eritrean presence in Sudan. So uh, it's, it looks like it's becoming internationalized, makes it more difficult to settle. Conflict analysts again claim that the differences within South Sudan can only be resolved when the country restructures its administration and adopts a proper constitution that will guide it. As such, in order to protect themselves, the countries of the Horn of Africa should not take sides, but work as a bloc to help the world's youngest nation get to its feet again as soon as possible. A Swiss holiday resort town invites global attention today as it hosts the much-anticipated opening day of a second round of peace talks on the Syrian crisis. 
The long-awaited talks, which followed a first round almost two years ago in Geneva, will push for a political process in Syria and end the carnage in the three-year-old civil war. But the start of the talks have been overshadowed by a UN invite to Iran, a key backer of the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad, which was rescinded a day later. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The main point of contention was whether Iran had accepted the outcomes of Geneva 1 as the basis for today's talks. But Iran insisted it wanted no preconditions, outraging the Syrian opposition who threatened not to attend and thereby forcing the Secretary-General's hand, as his spokesperson Martin Nasirki explained. The Secretary-General is deeply disappointed by Iranian public statements that are not at all consistent with that stated commitment. He continues to urge Iran to join the global consensus behind the Geneva communique. Given that it has chosen to remain outside that basic understanding, he has decided that the one-day Montreux gathering will proceed without Iran's participation. Iran has rejected the UN's version of events that it did not follow through on oral commitments, arguing they had consistently been against preconditions, including the Geneva One communique that calls for a transitional governing body with full executive powers. Iran's UN ambassador, Mohammed Kazi. All of you are very well aware about the consistency in our position about Geneva One. So the high political officials are expected to act based on realities, not their impressions. They've also suggested the UN buckled under pressure from the United States, something the UN would not confirm through spokesperson Farhan Haq. The communique that resulted from Geneva 1 is the basis for these discussions. It doesn't really make sense to have someone participate in discussions if they're doing it without understanding what the basis of the discussions are. The point of this process of Geneva 2, and the reason why it's called Geneva 2, is that it's meant to implement, to make operational, the communique that resulted from Geneva 1. That is what we're trying to do, and, and although the various parties do come in with different understandings of the situation, different understandings of who to support and why, what we are doing is, is, is relying on them to act and negotiate in good faith that what they will do is try to make operational the points that, were, that, that came out in the Geneva communique. But many view getting the warring parties around a table for the first time as progress in itself. With over 130,000 slaughtered and millions displaced, many in neighboring countries. Ban Ki-moon explains what he hopes to achieve. In Montreux, we will press them to launch a political process, move to a transitional governing body with the full executive powers and stop the violence. Expectations of a breakthrough this week remain low, with Syria's opposition coalition insisting President Bashar al-Assad should leave office, a matter which appears a non-starter for the government delegation. Sherwin Bricebees at the United Nations, New York. We welcome your feedback on Africa Rise and Shine. If you have any questions or comments about our show or just want to get in touch with us, you can call us on plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. You can also get a hold of us on our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.20 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Human rights need to be at the center of a peace deal for Syria, according to a group of UN independent experts. Talks over the future of Syria get underway in Switzerland today, aimed at bringing an end to three years of civil war in which over 100,000 people have been killed. On Tuesday, the Syrian authorities said a report alleging the execution of about 11,000 prisoners had no credibility. UN experts have written an open letter ahead of the talks. One of the signatories is Chaloka Beyani, the special rapporteur on the human rights of internally displaced persons. Daniel Dickinson asked him what he thought would come out of the meeting. It's a very important conference, considering that it has taken quite some time to actually convene in the aftermath of Geneva 1, and I think the circumstances involving human rights, the future of Syria, political participation, stability and security are paramount to actually address at this point in time. Why are you particularly focusing on the importance of human rights in this conflict? You have about 6.4 to 6.5 million persons displaced in Syria, you have about 2.4.5 million persons from Syria as refugees in the neighboring countries. There are serious allegations as we speak uh, of torture, inhuman and degrading treatment, of summary executions, and the fighting has gone on for a considerable period of time, and it's urban warfare. The cities are destroyed, and it will require quite a lot to reconstruct and rebuild Syria, and the people of uh, Syria desire a future in which you know, their freedom, their rights and their human rights will be ensured and respected. How hopeful are you that a solution will be found in Switzerland? I think that we should remain optimistic. One major difference this time round is that the major parties to the conflict have actually reached a stalemate which they recognize. None of them can defeat each other militarily. And once that happens, then the logic of conflict uh, is actually over. And it's time to bring that stalemate to the table and have concrete steps taken in order to have some agreement on how to proceed forward. From your perspective, how much of a challenge do you think it was to bring all these different players to the table? Oh, it's a huge challenge because the political dynamics are obviously riven with political rivalry and tension. And also, there are also different uh, parties with um, uh, different political agendas. There are jihadists now numbering more than a thousand uh, groups within Syria. You have what was the main backbone of the opposition, the Free Syrian Army, represented by the Syrian Opposition Council. So obviously, it's not possible that all of these groups uh, can come to the table. But I think that those that have main influence uh, over the fighting, over the war, over the politics, uh, participation, at least would begin to chart out a path for peace, which others can join, 
those that are generally interested. And once you have that uh, on one side, then they can begin to deal with those who are actually uh, anti-peace elements and uh, whose political agenda is not about peace, is not about democracy, but is about, again, either wanton destruction or taking Syria on a different path altogether. That was Chaluka Bayani, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Internally Displaced Persons, talking to Daniel Dickinson. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa Rise and Shine. A disarmament conference could be what the UN Secretary-General has described as a driving force for building a safer world and a better future. Bangi Moon is in Geneva where he addressed the conference on disarmament. The international forum which looks at all multilateral arms control and disarmament issues, including preventing nuclear war. Negotiations on its program to work have been deadlocked for nearly two decades. Diane Penn reports. The Secretary-General last appeared before the conference three years ago. As he pointed out, the world has not waited. Last year, the international community reacted in horror to the atrocious use of chemical weapons in Syria. In one voice, we condemned these acts as an outrageous violation of international humanitarian law and the war crime. The abhorrent use of chemical weapons was a stark reminder of the need to confront the dangers of all weapons of mass destruction, including nuclear weapons. We cannot wait for new catastrophes to act. Mr. Bond reminded delegates that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons was awarded the 2013 Nobel Peace Prize. He hoped this would inspire them. My message is clear. Do not wait for others to move. Be the first mover. Do not hide behind the utopian logic, which says that until we have the perfect security environment, nuclear disarmament cannot proceed. This is all the thing. This is the mentality of the Cold War era. We must face the realities of the 21st century. The conference on disarmament can be a driving force for building a safer world and a better future. That is its very mission. The Secretary-General has made disarmament and nuclear non-proliferation a UN priority because it can contribute to international peace and security. He said this is especially critical as the world strives to achieve the Millennium Development Goals and a development agenda to succeed the 2015 deadline. Iviator Manor, Israel's ambassador to the UN in Geneva, is president of the current session of the Conference on Disarmament, which runs through the 28th of March. The last few days have only been a stark reminder of how unsafe the world continues to be. The terrorist attack in Kabul that claimed the lives of over 20 people, among them UN personnel and other internationals, casts a dark and ever-going shadow over the prospects of our future generations. The Conference on Disarmament has a role to play and a responsibility in this respect to contribute towards changing this reality. 
The conference on disarmament observed a moment of silence in honor of the victims of that attack, which took place at a restaurant in the Afghan capital last Friday. Diane Penn, United Nations. Gateway to, Gateway to Africa. Your voice on matters tourism, travel, and business. It's a journey into Africa and discovery of its people and natural resources. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We'd like to hear from you if you have any questions or comments about our show or just want to get in touch with us, you can call us on plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero. You can also get a hold of us on our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Tabisolo Hoko up next with the headlines. Syrian peace talks to begin in Switzerland today with officials expressing little hope of a major breakthrough. The United Nations Human Rights Council adopts a resolution to appoint an independent expert to investigate the human rights situation in the Central African Republic. And Australia accused of human rights atrocities against refugees by the Human Rights Watch. Details at 9 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Thank you, Tabiso. Global Civil Society Alliance Civicus has released a revised version of what it regards as the world's most comprehensive compilation of commitments made by governments on civil society rights. According to Mandeep Tiwana, head of policy and research at Civicus, the compendium is the result of years of painstaking research on public documents that promise respect for civil society freedoms and is an invaluable tool for citizens and organizations around the world. You know, at the moment, a lot of civil society organizations that work for social change across the world are actually being increasingly threatened. In fact, after the Arab Spring, uh, calls for democracy and greater rights are being increasingly clamped down upon. And we wanted to remind governments, we wanted to remind the international community that a number of commitments have been made by our leaders to protect civil society rights, in particular the right to associate, the right to peacefully assemble, and also the right to express themselves. Now, the previous issue was published in 2008. This is now about five, six years later. Are there a lot of new findings, um, new things that happened since 2008 until this new publication? Yes, I mean, since 2008, 
governments have made additional commitments. You know, they've come on paper, they've recognized the right of civil society as an independent development actor. They've talked about creating, in quote-unquote, an enabling environment for civil society. But the reality is not gelling with what's actually happening on the ground. And we are very concerned about that. And, you know, recently in Nigeria, a law has been passed, you know, that criminalizes uh, civil marriages between people of the same sex. But the law also interestingly criminalizes anybody who runs a gay club or anybody who supports gay rights. Similarly in Uganda there's a bill on the anvil which again talks about anybody who supports the right of people to love whoever they choose and makes them a criminal and uh, you know in Egypt there's been a law where different hoops have been applied to for people who want to protest they have to seek permission from the government if they make any sort of minor infraction they can be punished very heavily and NGOs are being shut down right from Ecuador to Kuala Lumpur and there are protests at the moment happening in Kiev new laws are being promulgated to prevent civil society activity in Kiev and Ukraine and new laws have been promulgated to prevent civil society activists from carrying out their legitimate work. Just to recap on some of the places that you've mentioned, you are quoted here in the press release about this report saying from Kiev to Cairo and from Abuja to Kuala Lumpur, civil society groups are facing an increasing onslaught. Why is this so? One would actually expect that, you know, in modern times, as years go by and people get more recognition and so on, that things will get better for civil society groups and for public voices. But according to what you've just said, it seems as if things are actually getting worse. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's happened is a lot of autocratic authoritarian governments have been shaken up by the Arab Spring. So they want to preempt their people from organizing on the streets. And many of these people who are clamping down on civil society, you know, have been in power for a very long time and uh, obviously are very nervous that now they actually have to give way to democratic freedoms. So that's a big challenge. Also, civil society is now organizing much more. I mean, social media advances in technology and globalization, you know, has allowed people to express solidarity on common causes across the world. This is making people who are still stuck in the 19th century very nervous. Now, Mandeep, what would actually be the aim of this document? I mean, who will benefit from this and who is it accessible to? Look, we wanted this document first to remind the public that governments have made a number of commitments to civil society which they're not honoring. But we also wanted civil society groups, you know, to be able to use this document, whether they are situated in the Middle East or whether they are situated in Latin America, you know, they can, or whether they are situated in Africa or Asia, they can, they can look up what the UN promises and what their governments have signed on to. They can look at what regional organizations like the Inter-American Commission or the African Union promises on civil society and they can use that in making the arguments to the government and they can also use it to show the media that, you know, this is what the government say on paper, but this is actually what is happening in reality. Where can people access this document? Is it available on the internet? Yes, it's available on Civicus's website. If you just Google Compendium on Civil Society Rights, Civicus, you will find it. That was Mandeep Tiwana, Head of Policy and Research at the Global Civil Society Alliance, Civicus, talking to our executive producer, Janine Gutzer. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. It's exactly 8.35 Central African time, and you can get a hold of us on our landline, which is plus two seven one two three nine five zero five one zero five, or email us if you have any questions or comments about our show at info at channelafrica.org. 
A Kenyan magistrate has visited Nairobi's Westgate shopping mall, the scene of last year's Al-Shabaab terrorist attack. Magistrate Daniel Ochenja is hearing a case against four Somalis facing charges related to the attack. The magistrate has never been to Westgate Mall before. While there, he familiarized himself with the scene and prepared its rough sketch to guide him during the month-long hearing. David Keithy, a is a renowned Kenyan lawyer and expert on terrorism in an exclusive interview with James Shimanyula outside the court. Kiti explained why Kenya is vulnerable to attacks by Al-Shabaab terrorists. We share a border with Somalia and because we share a border with Somalia, the people on the other side of the country, that is Somalia, and the people of Kenya are the same. They share language, they share culture, religion. So they will live the same lifestyle. But then secondly is that uh, there's a lot of immigration of the Somalis themselves from Somalia to Kenya because of the political environment of the country. That is Kenya because Somalia is still in turmoil by and large. It's, it's, there's some improvement, but yes, it's still in turmoil. But secondly is that um, the capital city, Nairobi, attracts a lot of business, business opportunities for various people from different countries. I give you the East African region, Eastern Central and probably Somalia itself. So, so that then they will look for opportunities here. Because of the war again, we have a lot of immigrants into, into the country. When they come, there are two types of immigrants. Those that stay in camps and those that are endowed with certain wealth such that they would engage themselves under the special conventions, provision of the conventions, to be able to engage in, in wealth and income generating activities. Now, these are the people who mingle. But you see, they come from a certain background. They come from a political background. They come from a religious, a, a religious background. They also come from a certain indoctrination and belief. Now, those are the people that, although they look like the normal Somalis, they will engage in activities that would pronounce what they stand for, including terrorism. Again, it becomes more difficult because on a spot, you cannot just discriminate him because he looks like the other. You cannot spot him and single him out as a foreigner. But secondly, the other problem we have is that um, there's a lot of corruption at the immigration in this country. Now, that corruption means you can buy citizenship, you can you can get documentation to give you the right to live in this country, whereas you don't don't have that right. Now that has happened many times. We have had incidents where the government has sacked people because they have engaged allegedly in corrupt activities, selling citizenship. That that's even treasonable. When you give a Somali citizenship and you ask them about nationality and he shows you a Kenyan identification, either a passport or the national identity card, it would be very difficult for you then to probe further and say, where is your father, where did you come from, and check the background at an instant, unless there's reason to say, so for instance, a criminal behavior or a criminal act. Being a lawyer, can you tell our listeners uh, very briefly about, uh, we have charges of conspiracy floated by the prosecution, we have... Uh, being in illegal possession of uh, illegal materials, colluding or abetting. The ones that are being tried have not been identified so far as participants. But as a lawyer and as an expert, what do you think may tie them to the terrorists that attacked Westgate? We have one challenge because terrorism is a new crime in this country. We've just had a new act on terrorism. We've borrowed largely the act from UK and the Western countries. And again, I know the act came into force because the government was largely pushed by the U.S. to enact such an act. We haven't, uh, as prosecutions, judiciary, we still, and I know the judiciary is still undergoing certain trainings and the prosecution on how to respond to terrorism matters that come before them. We have had a problem also, um, there's a judge who ruled that an act of terrorism of a certain nature, the court may not have jurisdiction, which is not correct. And by and we've seen the judges embracing 
charges of terrorism and looking at them within the domestic concept and proceeding to convict. However, there is still no direction because these matters are not going to the Court of Appeal. They have not been gone to the Supreme Court because once it's the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal, then the other High Court judge, judges and the magistrates will follow suit in terms of getting a precedent and a way on how these decisions, in fact, meting out punishment, will be guided. How does uh, the law tie conspiracy to the persons that committed the offence where there is no identification? Is it what you call circumstantial evidence or what? And uh, is there any possibility of uh, some accused establishing an alibi? Ordinarily, conspiracy cannot be a charge on itself for the reason that conspiracy supports the other charges. So for instance, that a person uh, was engaged in terrorism or supported terrorism, then because of the support or the circumstances in which you found yourself part of the line of the incidents leading to terrorist attack, for instance, you conspired. That's why there will always be an incidental over conspiracy charge for any terrorism charges that are meted out against people. So that what you do is that those who commit the terrorism act themselves, those are charged for terrorism, but those that they support or abet the incident of terrorism, those then will have conspired. So conspiracy then is more of a support charge than the main charge. In other words, if I abet or I harbor a criminal to commit terrorism, I will be guilty in the end if there is what we call evidence, tight evidence. Well, yes, either tight evidence or circumstantial evidence, but the mere fact that, for instance, you were married to a terrorist and you kept that terrorist in the house with that knowledge, but you do not report. Because terrorists, what they do is they come to this country, they get national identities, and they marry from here, our fellow Somalis, and... Ordinarily, the wives would know these activities or suspicious activities. They would not report that. That's part of the conspiracy. That's why then it's important that even those people are brought together with um, the terrorists themselves. A terrorist cannot come and attack this country without support, without conspiracy of other people. That was David Kiti, a renowned Kenyan lawyer and expert on terrorism, talking to our correspondent, James Shimanula. A high court in Nairobi will today begin hearing a case in which four civil society organizations and eight individual petitioners have sued the Kenyan government for failing to protect them against sexual violence during the 2007-2008 post-election violence. The case is the first constitutional petition of its kind brought by victims of SGBV during the post-election violence and it will be heard in the Constitutional and Human Rights Division of the High Court of Kenya in Nairobi. Sarah Kimani reports. The petitioners have sued the Attorney General and five other senior government officials for their failure to protect victims of sexual and gender-based violence during the post-election violence of 2007-2008. Their failure to investigate and prosecute the perpetrators and their failure to provide reparations to the victims. Six female and two male survivors joined by four civil society organizations have accused the Kenyan government for failing to protect them and other Kenyans as required of them by the law during the skirmishes. Also enjoined the case is the Director of Public Prosecutions, the Independence Policing Oversight Authority, the Inspector General of the National Police Service, the Minister for Medical Services and the Minister for Public Health and Sanitation. According to a commission set up to investigate the violence, 
the 900 cases of sexual abuse violence that were reported during the post-election violence were only a tip of the iceberg. An independent study suggested that there may have been more than 40,000 incidences of sexual violence during the first three months of 2008. Among the atrocities committed were that women were raped and suffered deliberate transmission of diseases including HIV and were forcibly impregnated. Some men Two were sodomized or singled out for forced circumcision or penal mutilation and amputation. The case aims to obtain remedy for the survivors in the forms of medical, psychosocial and legal support as well as compensation. It also demands that the Kenyan government creates an internationalized special division within the Department of Public Prosecutions to properly investigate the crimes. Sarah Kemani, Kenya. Africa's economic growth prospects remain relatively robust and should continue to increase. This is according to the United Nations World Economic Situation and Prospects 2014 report released in Johannesburg yesterday. According to the report, after an estimated growth of 4.0% in 2013, economic growth in Africa is projected to accelerate to 4.7% in 2014 and 50 percent in 2015. The so-called WESP report focuses on the recent global economic performance and short-term prospects for the world economy examined in conjunction with key global economic policy and development issues. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Matlang reports. According to the report released by the United Nations Information Center in Johannesburg, South Africa, growth prospects in Africa are expected to be supported by improvements in the global economic and regional business environment, relatively high commodity prices, easing infrastructural constraints and increasing trade and investment ties with emerging economies. Dr. Charlotte Dutoit, Chief Executive Officer at PLUS Economics Advisories, says the report notes that Africa's recent growth is heavily driven by commodity production and exports but remains far below the continent's potential. The sustainability and the achievement of these growth prospects are dependent on one, the ability and the achievement of world growth altogether to the levels that have been projected but also an orderly rewinding and unwinding rather of the QE not translating into significant volatility in capital flows resulting into external debt finance increasing at too high levels but in addition to that in Africa in particular the prospects are positive on the back of commodity prices which have now been moderated and they've unwinded and there's been a moderation in the decline. In fact, there's been a stabilization in commodity prices which will not only benefit the commodity export countries but will assist the import countries in terms of managing their deficits and their planning moving forward. She says, however, despite the expected robust growth prospects, some significant internal and external downside risks and uncertainties could derail progress in Africa. The risks associated with this growth are of two-pronged in nature. On the one hand side, there are the international risks pertaining to the global growth. Um, there are risks pertaining to the orderly unwinding and tapering of QE measurements. And there are risks pertaining 
to the fiscal austerity and the capital flows and the ODA that has shown significant declines. These things all have got significant implications for sustainable growth in Africa. The report notes that Africa's recent growth is heavily driven by commodity production and exports but remains far below the continent's potential. It says growth is still failing to translate into meaningful job creation and broad-based economic and social development needed to reduce the high poverty and rising inequality rates in many countries. It also says the informal sector is still large and opportunities remain limited for many seeking to enter the labor market as seen by high youth unemployment rates and wider gender disparities in earnings. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Kandla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. Tabi Solihoko is up next with our economics update. Anglo-American Platinum, Impala Platinum and Lolman Platinum in South Africa say Amku's wage demands are unaffordable and unrealistic. The company CEOs say in a joint statement that they are concerned about the mine workers' union's $1,152 entry salary demand. Amku members are to embark on a strike tomorrow. Meanwhile, South Africa's Chamber of Mines will today approach the Labour Court in Johannesburg to seek an interdict against Mine Workers Union AMCU to prevent a strike in the gold sector. AMCU has served three major platinum producers and some gold mines with the strike notices, intending to down tools tomorrow. More than 70,000 mine workers are expected to strike, Edwin and Tidi reports. AMCO has said its strike action will go ahead as planned, as the union's Joseph Matunjo explains. All members of AMCO will be down in tools. AMCO is the majority at Impala and Lonmin and Anglo. However, the Chamber of Mines, Ellis Tradom, says the strike action in the gold sector will not be protected. The Chamber of Mines is approaching the Labour Court for an order to interdict the uh, AMCO members from going on strike in gold. Yesterday, AMCO held a meeting with Anglo Gold officials in an effort to avert the strike, but the details of the meeting are yet to be made public. South Africa's Labour Minister, Mildred Oliphant, will meanwhile meet with the mining sector unions and employers today. I have discussed some of the issues with the President of NATO, of which AMCO is affiliated to, but I am in the process to meet with both the unions and the employers. But uh, I can't predict the outcome of that meeting. So we'll see in terms of the process on how then are we going to deal with that particular issue. Brent futures have risen above $107 a barrel as Outlook reports indicate that the global oil demand will rise more quickly this year. This as economic growth in industrialized countries accelerates. The International Energy Agency says that the economic growth will absorb more supply even as U.S. shale oil output reaches record highs. The International Monetary Fund has also raised its oil growth forecast for the first time in nearly two years, saying advanced nations could pick up the mantle of growth from emerging markets. 
The US dollar trades at 10.83 South African rands at 8.81 Botswana pulas and at 5.51 Zambian kwachas. It's also trading at 0.60 to the British pound and at 0.73 to the euro. Looking at commodities now, gold $1,243, platinum $1,453 an ounce, brand crude 109, 10 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabi. So now, Tami, Ghana, Libya, also in the quarterfinals. This Mali is going to be very exciting. Nigeria. It's very exciting. Yesterday, Zimbabwe was also through. So we're looking to a very exciting quarterfinals in the Chen tournament. Okay. Well, let's see how it plays out. Your yeah. predictions? Nigeria. Okay. I'll tell you tomorrow <laughs> who I think will win. <laughs> Give us an update. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Ghana and Libya have booked their places in the quarterfinals of the African Nations Championship chain. Kwabina Adwesi scored in the 76th minute penalty to give Ghana a 1-0 victory over Ethiopia and ensure that the Black Stars finished top of Group C. Libya, who had been top of the table, came back from 2-0 down to draw with Congo and booked their last eight spot. They had been heading for an exit until Abderrahman Fetori scored on 93rd minutes to make it to all. Libya's last cup strike turned the tables on Congo, who had looked to be qualifying ahead of their opponents. And the Red Devils will head home, reflecting on what might have been a good tournament. It was an emotional exit for Congo Brazzaville after squandering two goals cushion. The Red Devils led 1-0 at halftime and shortly after the interval, Hadi Bengula made it 2-0. According to their coach, Claude Roy, they played a very good attacking football, but Libya was better prepared mentally. There was a paradox there. We managed our emotion very nicely till we scored. Uh, we had an offensive tactic and uh, don't forget that we had very uh, three very young players. Uh, we lost it. You know, that's the game. Uh, when you have the opportunities, uh, you must take them. And um, also in front of us, uh, our opponent uh, was very mature and more able to deal with its own emotions. Um, South African Sports Minister Figile Mbalula believes that a total overall of the Bafana Bafana is essential if the fortunes of the team are to be turned around. Speaking after the elimination of Bafana from the African Nations Championship this past weekend, Mbalula says that the majority of Bafana currently squad have been around with this team for far too long. Here's Sports Minister Figile Mbalula. Some of the players think that uh, it is their right to be there in the national team, at dark or blue, they will be called. You change the coach from Denny Jordan to Mbalula, Mbalula will select me because I'm the best of what the country have. Can we go dig deeper in the reserves, look at ourselves, and basically select the best who are hungry for, for, for victory and basically performance? And that is what is important. 
Uh, you can count some of the players in the national team currently, even if they don't play in Europe, but they've been there with the national team. Under them, we have not won anything. And now in tennis, Raven Glassen yesterday became the first South African to reach the semifinals of the Grand Slam tennis doubles event since 2010 after advance in the men's doubles at the Australian Open in Melbourne. The 31-year-old and his American partner Eric Butorak narrowly defeated 12th-seed Filipino Treat Howe and Dominic Iglot of the Great Britain 6-7-7-6-6-4 to progress. Glassen made a calculated decision to limit his singles appearances and concentrate on doubles four years ago, embarking on a strenuous and methodical program to improve his game. And finally, South Africa's long-reigning champion, Moruti Mtalane, will fight Filipino Jetha Oliver on March the 15th at the Deben Convention Center for the vacant International Boxing Organization IBO title. The announcement comes after Mtalane pulled out of a mandatory title defense against Thailand's Amnat Rereng and relinquished the International Boxing Federation, the IPF flyweight title in the process. Juran says Montalane has remained in good standing with the IPF, which understood the motivations behind his decision to relinquish the title. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa. UN experts to probe human rights abuses in Central African Republic and Syria peace talks set to get underway in Switzerland. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us on and follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to Southern Africa is Yvonne Chaka Chaka with Motherland.
Y bueno, 